District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to episode 219 of the podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Today, I'm going to briefly discuss some social media posts that have drawn the ire of a lot of us regarding wolves and if national parks should be commenting on state-run management hunts. I'll also talk about an interesting bill to convert old Navy fleets into artificial reefs or structure for fish. And then I'll also talk about fishermen, especially those who partake in offshore fishing, and their concerns about the Vineyard Wind Project in New England and kind of the controversies surrounding that. I'll try to be fair with my assessment of it, but I've always been very concerned about offshore wind and its impact on ecosystems, fisheries, and things of that sort. So we'll briefly talk about those three subjects today. And at the end of today's show, I will preview and tease who my next guest will be for Monday's forthcoming episode. So stay tuned. Last week, Yellowstone National Park on their Instagram accounts and then also in an official press release had lamented the loss of three wolves belonging to the Junction Butte pack comprising 27 wolves to Montana hunters during the first week of Montana's wolf hunt. They claim on Instagram that the Junction Butte pack transcends Yellowstone's Northern Range and is the most viewed wolf pack in the world. And in their press release, according to Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Shawley, he says Yellowstone plays a vital role in Montana's wildlife conservation efforts and its economy. These wolves are part of our balanced ecosystem here and represent one of the special parts of the park that draw visitors from around the globe. We will continue with the state of Montana to make the case for reinstating quotas that would protect the core wolf population in Yellowstone, as well as Montana's direct economic interests derived from the hundreds of millions spent by park visitors each year. Multiple recent overflights conducted by the park confirmed the pack size has been reduced from 27 to 24 animals, losing two female pups and one yearling. Female yearling. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks confirms three wolves were killed outside of Yellowstone in the general vicinity of where the Junction Butte pack was traveling mid September. Yellowstone wolves in the northern range spend an estimated 5% of the time outside the park, usually in late fall. For over a decade, the state of Montana limited the number of wolves taken from Montana's wolf management units 313 and 316, which are immediately adjacent to the park's northern boundary. 90% of wolves in Montana are outside units 313 and 316. Recent state changes to hunting and trapping have lifted restrictions within these units, making Yellowstone's wolf population in the northern range more extremely vulnerable. Montana has also authorized baiting from private property. According to them, over 33% of the boundary Yellowstone shares with Montana is within one mile of private property where baiting is not permissible. And they say that the Junction Butte Pack formed in 2002 in the northern section of the park. They are the most observed pack in Yellowstone because they den within view of the northeast entrance and the road Slow Creek Campground, providing thousands of daily views. The pack had eight pups in 2021. Now, here's the response from Sportsman's Alliance from Brian Lynn. And he wrote this. I'm going to read for you guys what their concern about with posts like this is and why we all should be a little bit concerned with this. And he wrote this yesterday, October 4th, the National Park Service recently issued a press release and post on social media about three wolves killed during Montana's hunting season after they left the boundaries of Yellowstone National Park. 
As is typical, mainstream media outlets picked up the story and repeated it verbatim while social media keyboard warriors screamed about the inhumaneness of any type of hunting, the ability of wolves to intrinsically manage their own populations, along with many other biological fallacies and the overall irresponsibility of Montana hunters and scientific wildlife management. What's irresponsible, however, is the National Park Service issuing that release in a vacuum of information, essentially throwing gas on fire that's been raging for decades. Do park officials issue a press release disparaging scientific management when elk, bison, and other game leave the park and are killed during regulated hunting seasons? No, they do not. When it comes to other game animals, Yellowstone acknowledges the need, effectiveness, and merits of scientific wildlife management. Take bison, for instance. To gain support for bison outside the boundaries of Yellowstone, managers must work together to address people's concerns while also conserving the population. The IBMP partners are actively addressing issues related to controlling numbers, hunting, and new conservation areas around the park. Due to high rates of survival and reproduction, the bison population is currently increasing by 10% to 17% per year. Da, 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 da. So now Brian says, what makes wolf management any different than that of bison? The answer, nothing. Yellowstone National Park isn't a zoo. It doesn't exist in a vacuum, and neither does the science nor facts supporting wolf management. Wildlife, including wolves, are managed at the population level, not at the individual level. Wildlife management accounts for environmental variables, as well as natural and human-caused mortality, among other factors. Nature is inherently set up to deal with death. That's why animals have litters, multiple eggs, and spawn dozens of fry at once, and why breeding seasons are staggered throughout a wide range. It's all about maximizing survival rates. The human desire to name individual animals or anthropomorphically identify with family units does a grave disservice to wildlife management and the animals themselves. And and Yellowstone National Park is complicit in humanizing wildlife and conflating several issues while ignoring the science and life outside the park when it comes to wolves in order to justify their own biased interests. The mere fact that the Junction Butte Pack was comprised of 27 wolves suggests an unnatural, easy life within the park. Outside of the park, wolf packs average 6 to 10 animals with a large pack around 15. It's extremely rare and only under the best circumstances that a pack reaches nearly 30 animals. And Brian sources a piece in the Colorado Sun to dispel the insinuations of mismanagement of wolves coming from Yellowstone officials. And the article, according to Cliff Notes version, has this. Montana has more than 1,100 wolves of the 6,000, I believe, that you need population-wise to delist. Montana's recovery plan calls for 15 breeding pairs and 150 wolves total. Montana's wolf population is easily 10 times those thresholds. Rule of thumb, just to maintain a steady population, 40% of wolves must be removed each year. An average of 240 wolves are killed by hunters or other means annually in the state. Just six hunters killed their bag limit of five wolves in 2020. Montana's wolf population has continued to grow since the state took over management in 2010. And Brian calls for its high time. Yellowstone National Park stopped politicizing the wildlife management of one species over others. While the park cites vague tens of millions of dollars spent in Montana communities by park goers, these people are there to view there for the Yellowstone experience and are not just wolf watchers. In contrast, Montana sportsmen spend a verifiable almost or more than $53 million on just hunting and fishing licenses. Sportsmen spent almost $42 million in Idaho and almost $33 million in Wyoming, not counting dollars to gateway in rural communities where they stay gas up by groceries and other supplies. That was a good summation. I wanted to give you guys the full context. You could hear both sides. You can make your own assessment. But I think I inclined myself more to Brian's view because... 
Yellowstone National Park has no jurisdiction of the Montana wolf population. So outside of park boundaries, they have no jurisdiction. And this is the mistake that a lot of people make conflating the greater Yellowstone ecosystem with the Yellowstone National Park. Two very different things. They need to be made distinctly. Those contrasts need to be made distinctly. And I understand what is being reported about the Montana wolf hunt is controversial because some people think that the quota is being far exceeded. And I'm going to wait to see what those numbers are, what harvest numbers and quotas numbers are until I make an assessment if the hunt went in excess or if it was right on the money or if the hunt was uh, mischaracterized and misrepresented. Seeing the Biden administration, especially those in charge of National Park Service weighing in on this, kind of contrasting the science, the best available science, and they've been going back and forth, as I've reported, about whether or not to delist wolves. And the evidence shows that gray wolves are fully recovered. They have reached 6,000 number threshold that is needed to properly delist them and return management to the states. And different states, including Montana, already do manage their wolf populations because of the DPS population being kind of treated as separate from the overall population of gray wolves. And like I said, that was first, I think, approved in 2010 in Montana's case. So be careful what you read. Don't necessarily read everything online. There's a lot of emotional appeals, arguments to be maintained. You have to look to the science. And I'm appreciative of Sportsman's Alliance um, assessment of this and their kind of examination into what was wrong with this press release. So don't believe everything about wolves. Let's see how the season proceeds. So remember the distinctions between the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem and Yellowstone National Park and that the park shouldn't be meddling into the affairs of states, especially outside of park boundaries. I will talk briefly about the REFACT, and I noticed this in today's morning edition of the Fishing Wire, which is a great resource if you're looking for kind of a summation of the latest in fishing news. There's also the hunting wire and there's outdoor wire as well. So if you're not able to get information from me or other people who comment on this, this is a great newsletter that comes out daily and they take vacation. Or this comes out daily and it's provided by the Fishing Tackle Retailer, which is actually a great industry resource if you're curious. So they have a legislation section and they're talking about Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar's REFACT, which is H.R. 5306, which is reusing equipment for environmental fortification. And they describe the bill as providing significant benefits for recreational anglers. And Salazar secured the REFACT as an amendment to H.R. 4350, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which the House of Representatives passed on a significant bipartisan vote on September 23rd. Although, I am a little skeptical of attaching good legislation to some of this stuff. However, I'll keep that separate from here. But individually, this bill could be very interesting and good, especially for fish habitat. And another bullet point they list is the REFACT will provide a pathway for retired naval vessels to become artificial reefs, providing habitat for important recreational reef fish species and a boost for local coastal economies. And they say why it matters. Many coastal states have artificial reef programs that sink anything from fabricated concrete balls or pyramids to old ships when they are available to provide habitat for fish and rich targets for anglers and divers in the area. Congress is proposing to significantly boost these programs with the REFACT, which will require the Secretary of the Navy to report when a vessel is being retired from the Naval Vessel Register. Providing access to substantial reefing materials in the form of decommissioned U.S. Navy ships will allow many states 
and opportunities to substantially increase their offshore habitat for reef fish and fishing opportunities for anglers. And they describe that artificial reefs are more than merely fish attractors. When a new hard structure is introduced into the marine environment, it does not take long for a microecosystem to begin developing. This occurs because artificial reefs provide a place for algae and invertebrates such as coral to accumulate and capture nutrients from surrounding waters and begin the process of assimilating biomass through the food chain. In a relatively short amount of time, Smaller fish congregate to feed on the algae and invertebrates, and these smaller creatures soon attract larger predators, many of whom, many of which are important sport fish. There are numerous examples of decommissioned vessels being successfully converted into artificial reefs, benefiting the marine environment and becoming valuable fishing destinations. So if you want to read more of it, you can do that. And Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation recently joined several recreational fishing groups on a letter of support of the Reef Act. I will include that in the show notes for you guys to read. And whether it would be attached through the NDAA or as a standalone bill, I, th- I would prefer it would be passed in a standalone bill. I think that's better, and it'll be less riddled with waste and distractions, in my humble opinion. So we will keep track of the refact. All right, you have probably seen me rail against offshore wind, and I try to be you know, open-minded to different energy sources, and I can when it's encouraged by the private market, and I'm open to that. But as an angler, I'm very off-put by kind of offshore wind turbines, especially if they're put in the path of fish migration patterns, critical fish habitats, and other important means. And I've heard the, and I've read about the different complaints from local tourism boards, from recreational fishing interests, from coastal communities. And this could be a fire that is brewing a lot more. I found a link from the Saltwater Guides Association, also from the Fishing Wire this morning, that said that there's no denying that offshore wind development is going to affect East Coast fisheries, ecosystems, and communities. Some of the impacts may be beneficial and some may be detrimental. And in many cases, the impacts won't be fully known until the turbines are already in the water. What we can be sure of, however, is that fishery stakeholders have to be a meaningful part of the conversation throughout the process from project conception through construction and operations. This Only with this kind of engagement and mutual trust can developers effectively minimize impacts on both marine ecosystems and commercial and recreational fishing economies. They say that they have joined the vineyard wind as a fisheries representative, joining a handful of other stakeholders representing commercial and recreational fisheries interests, all of us will be affected. And while the level of enthusiasm for offshore wind may vary across FRs, the need to be part of the dialogue does not, because as one FR aptly stated in the meeting, quote, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, end quote. They claim on Vineyard Wind that the fisheries representatives represent the interests of fishermen to the project and help make sure the project is getting the information it should have about the fishing industry. Fisheries rep represent the interests of fishermen, not the project. Fisheries reps also help out get out the word about project activities offshore and help to make sure the project is aware of any immediate problems or concerns from fishermen. And some fisheries reps are compensated for their time by the project. So they include Martha's Vineyard Fisherman Preservation Trust, the Port of New Bedford, Maine Lobstermen's Association, New Bedford Fish Seafood Consulting, Coastal Asset Management, LLC, Commercial Fishery Center of Rhode Island, Montauk Fish Dock, the American Saltwater Guides Association, and individuals, the Responsible Offshore Development Alliance. And this doesn't necessarily represent all fisheries interests. They could have handpicked a hand-select few uh, fisheries interests. I bet you there are other fisheries interests who are not on board this project, And I was largely curious to read more about this because Time Magazine 
wrote an article called U.S. Fishermen Are Making Their Last Stand Against Offshore Wind. And friend of the show, Cody McLaughlin, had talked about this, and I'm going to try to extract that study. He had mentioned it, alluded to when he last was on the show, and they talk about Vineyard Wind. It's a project that is said to be the first ever commercial-scale offshore wind form in the United States. They purport that they'll be generating 800 megawatts of power, or enough to power 400,000 homes. And they say that dozens of other offshore wind projects are in development up and down America's East Coast. We have some here in Virginia, which will probably be very controversial as well, um, because I remember there was an expose in Wall Street Journal. It was, what, two offshore wind turbines that would cost $300 million, which was insane for that type of cost. Whether or not you support it, um, that's not a wise use of money. And... They're saying that, what is it, and earlier this month, so here's what Time Magazine says about fishermen being the last stand against wind exploration offshore. Earlier this month, a coalition of fishing industry representatives and outfits, including 50 New Bedford fishing boats, filed a lawsuit against several U.S. agencies, including the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, which approved Vineyard Wind in May, alleging that they violated federal law and allowing the project to go forward. The fishing groups framed that fight as a matter of survival, a last-ditch effort to slow down a coalition of banks, technocrats, and global energy companies set on erecting multi-billion dollar projects that they worry could devastate their livelihoods. Money is certainly a big issue for many of those behind Vineyard Wind. Backers like Bank of America and JP Morgan have pledged about $2.3 billion in funding for the project, and they're looking for returns on that investment. But there's also a societal imperative to push ahead with such projects, with many green energy proponents saying there's little choice but to get offshore turbines built as soon as possible if the U.S. has any chance of meeting its obligations under the Paris Agreement and averting the worst effects of climate change. Da, 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 and the Biden administration is counting on such turbines to produce about 10% of electricity by 2050. And in coastal dense populations like Massachusetts and New York, leaders view seabound wind farms as a linchpin of their net zero ambitions. And they write that fishing industry interests have long been opposed to offshore turbines elsewhere in the world. In France, for instance, fishermen helped sink an early offshore project back in 2004. In the U.S., however, much of the early opposition to offshore wind came from wealthy homeowners from wealthy homeowners opposed to turbines that they thought could mar their ocean views. And they had cited Senator Ted Kennedy. Many subsequent offshore wind leases were extended in waters further offshore where turbines would be out of sight of land. Beachfront homeowners could rest easy. Instead, fishing interests worried about hits to their business became offshore wind's primary opponents. Other projects have caused concern for fishermen in North Carolina and Maryland, while a planned 1.1 gigawatt wind farm off the coast of New Jersey has worried some fishers, although the project is largely steering clear of traditional fishing areas. This March, the Lobster Cruise in Maine held a boat protest over a planned construction of a single floating wind turbine off the state's Monhegan Island. In Massachusetts, the fishing advocates who sued Boehm said that the federal government ignored their request for more rigorous scientific study of offshore wind turbines' effects on fishing, as well as their concerns over wind turbines, making it harder to traverse fishing grounds, among other grievances. And you can read that if you are curious. And they're claiming that the offshore wind industry is trying to be a good player and has made lots of compromises in this space at the request of fishermen. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about this project, opposition from fishing interests, what's some of the risks that entail from developing too close to shore and what's its, what its impacts are on fisheries, on the ecosystem, how to disrupt fish migration patterns, I'll include all of that for you. But this isn't going anywhere and it's going to be debated 
whether or not this could be truly sustainable. We've talked about other energy sources, which would have less of a corrosive effect on the landscape, even onshore, and why those should be pursued perhaps more than completely upending what could be, you know, deemed as critical fish habitat. And we hear we hear radical preservationists talk about protecting marine land sanctuaries and doing this, but when it comes to protecting vital fishery grounds, apparently it doesn't matter. So that same consideration, I think, should be had for fishermen, and, and they contribute a lot to conservation dollars. Both recreational and commercial fishing interests play a role in the economy, especially with recreational's output on the outdoor economy and then commercial fishing interests, and, and certainly those two contingencies clash. It's very known that recreational and commercial fisheries interests don't normally get along because of just different interests, but in this issue, they're actually coming together to voice their opposition. So it'd be nice to hear more from recreational fishing interests and to hear their concerns more. On Monday, everyone, we are going to be joined by Representative Dan Newhouse, who serves as chairman of the Western Caucus, to talk about some interesting developments relating to land management, conservation, and what the caucus is up to. I have referenced the caucus a lot since we started the podcast, and they represent rural American interests. They are ranchers, hunters, farmers. They have been pretty good checks on the Biden administration, and I think they're going to go further with their kind of opposition to some of the policies emanating from the Biden administration. But we're going to be Thrilled to be joined by Chairman Newhouse of the Western Caucus. He is a Republican from Washington State, and he will have a lot to say in our conversation, but that will be recording very, very soon. And so Monday, you can expect a conversation with Chairman Newhouse to learn more about the caucus and some initiatives they're working on. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe some episodes and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. I get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy. So you'll see guests come from me. And I'm, but like I said, I'm always open to different guests coming on the show. 